Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with John Brook. John, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks, Josh. Yeah. I'm glad to have you back, and it's this is like torture for me because I want to keep talking big history like we talked last time, and you're one of the only sources I have for it. But I'm going to move to American history because that's another big topic for me and I think for sustainability. In particular, regular listeners know the parallels that I've been finding between abolitionism, which I, I describe as a role model movement for changing culture and sustainability. But I want to bring a, a personal side to it of of your interest, what what brought you to it, if you don't mind sharing. To um to big history or to to American history. American history this time. American history, yes. Right. Well, you know, I mean it I literally was Two minds way back when. When I went to Cornell as an undergrad, I did two majors. One was in essentially American history. One was in anthropology and archaeology, which is the and and the two overlapped because I did some historical demography in the history department. But basically, I built the built the groundwork for my ever since uh, for based on background of you know interests as a, as a kid, but built my background in both areas uh, sort of simultaneously. And when I got to Penn, the, the powers that be told me that uh, Michael Zuckerman, my advisor, well, we can't do that that big history stuff. Uh, we can, you know, well, we, we didn't call it that then. Uh, let's let's focus on American history. So I I went ahead with that, and I've worked on a, a project on Massachusetts that that kept expanding from the 18th century far into the 19th century. And uh, ended with a chapter on abolition and anti-slavery and, and the coming of the Civil War. So I carried that from from the it was a regional study of, of Worcester County, and I carried it from early 18th century through the Revolution to the uh, the outbreak of the Civil War. So that was how I, I got my feet wet and uh, in American history and, and taught it ever since at Tufts and then here at Ohio State. I can't help but ask, it reminds me, when, when I started my first company, we wrote a patent and we found a patent lawyer and the patent lawyer said, well, this patent looks like it can be doable and you know you should find someone to do it for you. And we're like, what? And he goes, well, it's going to be too hard for you to do it yourselves. And we're like, that was all we needed to keep going. And that drove me a lot. So I wondered, did you send a, was his name Zuckerman, your advisor? Yeah. 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 Did you send him a copy of Rough Journey? Oh, yes. He has uh, spent a little time with it. And- I saw him this summer. He he um, came to my uh, my retirement event. It was amazing. He is thirteen years older than me, and uh, it was just amazing to see him. But he was a little stunned by by the direction they took. <laughs> was it satisfying to achieve something yeah. that someone said can't be done? Oh yeah, I love that. Well, yeah, yeah. Ah, getting things done that people thought couldn't be done. Thirteenth Amendment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. Well, that's that's kind of the meat of the matter for what we want to talk about today, I guess. Yeah. You know, I'm going to share something that I don't share with a lot of people that during the pandemic, I was picking up litter because I pick up litter every day. And now I'm going to say something that to us physicists makes sense because we can jump between, like, we can say it's a centimeter from here to there for something that's a few centimeters away. And we can also say something like 10 billion light years away is also what we measure in centimeters. So we make these big leaps and it makes sense to us. So I'm picking up litter, and it occurs to me that someone has thrown they threw beer cans out the car window, and I'm picking up by the side of the road. And I think, 
I have to work. Someone unilaterally chose to do something that makes me work or I suffer. Now, when I mentioned the following, I'm going to say what I said to a friend of mine. And then as, as soon as I said, I was like, oh, good thing I said that to a very close friend and not to <laughs> in public. What I said was, oh, that's the same system as slavery. Now, I was not saying that picking up litter is like chattel slavery, <laughs> but I was saying systemically there's a similarity there in a way yeah. that like a centimeter and 10 billion light years, they're both units of measure. So I thought that was worth pursuing, but I also knew not to talk about it. And that was a couple months later, George Floyd was murdered. And then I realized, oh, okay, really not the right time to make this comparison. But then I came across a quote, Andrew Hoffman, I don't know if you know him. He's a professor at University of Michigan, and he's in the he's jointly in the business school and their school for the environment. Uh-huh. Yeah. He wrote a paper, not peer-reviewed, it was like a review paper, I think. And he talks about a conversation he had with a an oil executive. And the oil executive says to him, do you know what we used for energy before oil? And Andrew didn't know. And the executive says, slaves. And so Andrew was surprised and didn't know what to make of that at, at the time. But what I've taken away is that, so the 13th Amendment made slavery illegal in this country. And then, okay, so you have all these cotton gins. You'd rather have it powered by a steam engine than a person. Steam engines don't get sick, they don't go to sleep. Oh, and I think for, my takeaway was that for over a century, people thought, we've changed, we've taken the cruelty out because we put machines in to do what people used to do and the machines don't feel pain, they don't get hurt. But what they missed, which is all over the headlines now and has been for generations, is that the pollution didn't go away. It just dispersed so that it looked like it was gone. But the suffering changed form, but it didn't go away. Because my go-to number of measure here is, is that the Lancet... The, the medical journal publishes yeah. that 9 million people a year die from breathing polluted air every year. And that number is predicted to increase. And that's just one me- one way that pollution and our environmental problems cause suffering. And 9 million, the Atlantic slave trade took centuries to reach that kind of number. But that's every year. It's been every year for the past close to a decade. And so it 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 restored my interested in looking up this, like it wasn't a comparison anymore. I wasn't saying slavery, uh, pollution or uh, unsustainability is like slavery. I'm saying it's the same system. It just evolved. And as in, you know, we switched out one source of energy. Right. Well, this, this, I, I got obsessed with this little problem about, about five or six years ago and, and did the, did the analysis of uh, in terms of calories, calories of you know, daily food intake as an energy burn for free working people, for slaves, and then compared it to coal, coal didn't conversion to BTUs, and it is, it is. I mean, just as a as a thought exercise, your coal, your oil executive was wrong. It was an oil that replaced slaves. It was coal that effectively. Build the energy space. Now, this human muscle was the driver of economies since the beginning of time. And suddenly, in the middle of the 19th century, you know, gradually over the course of the 
the 19th century, from the 1780s on. But even there, it's, it doesn't really get applied to rotary power until the 1820s, 1830s. And that's that's the key moment uh, where they you can apply coal, coal energy to the turning of machinery. And the the numbers go from I think the that's the the numbers are just stunning. It was essentially coal was and this is just burning a lot of this was burning for uh, wasn't even for industrial use, but it were roughly three times as much BTUs from coal as slaves in 1800, and there were 150 times as many in 1860. The volume of energy applied to the U.S. economy shifted dramatically. And it really shifted dramatically in the 1840s and 50s toward coal. Can I forget from- those numbers again? In eight, well, the first one was five times, and then it was- first one was three times as much. Three times, and 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 that was eighteen. So that was being used to burn, you know, for you know, to for heat. So there's a certain amount of this is from heat. So so really, probably was it was probably one to one. Uh, or less, and that that was eighteen twenty, eighteen hundred, and then 1800. by eighteen fifty, it's it's one hundred and fifty to one slaves, slave labor as a, as you know measured in BTUs uh, was <laughs> all weighed by coal labor, and there literally are people discussing this in the newspapers. William Lloyd Garrison in the uh, published a review of a book published in the late eighteen fifties in the Liberator in. 1859, 1860, where he, they talked about, well, what if we could replace slaves with machines? Now, obviously, and I say this uh, autobiographically slightly because I remember watching a show in 1966 about sharecroppers and realizing that hand labor was still going on in the, you know, in the production of cotton into our, into my lifetime and to when it was being replaced Finally, by machinery, you know, the cotton picking was being done by people and sharecropping was a real thing that continued until into into the 1950s and 1960s that, you know, finally machines replaced replaced labor in the fields and leaving a lot of people unemployed and without decent replacement for their work. So, we, you know, we but the most fundamental thing here is that we live in a country that from the beginning. There was this land labor problem. We got all this land. We took it from the Indians. Literally, we took the land from the Indians. Now, what do we do with it? We can't do all the work ourselves. We have to coerce other people to do it for us. And actually, this has been going on for millennia. All right, I was just reading about something called Renaissance slavery. It's a term that they admitted. Well, not too many people know about this. But basically... After the Black Death, 1350, there is a major expansion of the slave trade out of the Black Sea area to northern Italy to replace, you know, they just needed more bodies. This had been going on in the Mediterranean for, you know, thousands of years. People had been, you know, all those great monuments of the ancient world were built by, you know, were built voluntarily. Here's about it. It was done. All that work was being done by coerced labor, and it really something that is is really quite stunning. So you have to think of this this ancient system that was swept away by the abolitionist movement over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, and we're really still living in the aftershocks of that because as a country we haven't we haven't figured out how to live together with the people who were once slaves.
Do you know if the slavery before American South slavery was chattel slavery with the cruelty, the chains and the irons and the death rates that you see in the Caribbean? Well, I, notoriously, Roman slavery was, I mean, it, it varied, but it was, it, they talk about how the chattel slavery was essentially revived forms of plantation slavery being in use in the ancient Mediterranean. And I mean, another little dimension here is early Islam is moving people from East Africa to work under coerced conditions, aka slaves, in the course of the uh, the rise of Islam. So, you know, early Iraq, I just, something I really I recently discovered, uh, there was a, around a thousand CE, AD, there was, and I, that, I haven't got that date right, but basically, you know, in the Abbasid dynasty, there was a major slave revolution uh, to lasted for 14 years around Basra, where people from who were African people who had been enslaved rose up and fought the Islamic forces for 14 years in the marshes before they were defeated. So there's just an amazing story. Yes, traditionally we see certain forms of slavery, particularly inside of Africa, being kinship slavery, people who are throwing themselves on the mercies of other people when they are, you know, afflicted by drought, their children have a, have, a, have reduced stat. They're not full slaves anymore. And within a few generations, people were free. But there was also you know, a, an enormous long-term tradition of coerced slavery that goes back and back. And the American story, thus, is a continuation of that. The reason I asked is that the I had an author on here who talked about he said that abolitionism was the first example in history. I, I might be overstating what he said. Of the, For all of history, there have been people fighting for freedom. But he said this was the first example of one group fighting for a different group's freedom. Mm-hmm. Not their own, but a different group that they didn't have to. And I I took him at his word. And if, if it wasn't the first time, it certainly seems like a time. And I, he was talking about British abolitionism. Mm-hmm. But so I started wondering why it would happen then since slavery has been around for 10,000 years. <laughs> and I speculated that yeah. my idea was that the slaves are in North America and the absentee landlords are in Europe. And so there's distance and scale that you, know, you have these two giant continents. So that since someone in England could say more sugar and someone in Saint-Domingue has to make it happen then the person causing the person driving it and then also the buyers don't see it either although the Europeans buying the sugar well, so the demand can increase and then the people there just have to do it and so no I mean this is this is the fundamental I mean there is there, the literature on that problem why did anti-slavery why did abolitionism emerge in the 18th century it could it fills entire libraries it's an enormous literature and in, a, in the end, you know, if I really push it, there is a, and I'll tell a story in a second, but, but the broad background, you know, the end, people have come down on the, to the argument that those people with major economic interests in slavery resisted tooth and nail, but people with indirect interests, you know, people who lived in the societies that benefited gradually really decided that they had to make a change, and that had to do with the rise of sensibility, that people were really, that humanitarianism is a real thing, and it emerged over the course of the 18th century 
and people respond. That's an actor in in the public sphere. The most dramatic story in the American rise of American anti-slavery. I love to use use uh, Benjamin Lay as the the originator. There are earlier voices, but he's the one that is the most dramatic. He's a he was a a little person. He was four foot tall. He made his way from the back country of England to the West Indies, where he saw slavery tooth and nail, and then made his way to Pennsylvania. He was a Quaker. And here's the point. What he did was to say, look, we are Quakers. We have we believe in the inner light. We believe in the sacredness of all things, the inner dwelling of the spirit. Therefore, we have to we can't even abuse animals. We shouldn't even eat animals. We should be vegetarians. And slavery is beyond the pale. So he would burst into meanwhile, American Quakers in Pennsylvania and New Jersey were holding slaves. This is the seventeen thirties. He would stand outside Quaker meetings in his bare feet in the snow. Why are you doing this? Well, no one, because that's what our slaves have to do. And then he went into one one of the events. He lectured the meeting holding a Bible. And then at the end of the meeting, in his oration, he stabbed the Bible with a dagger. And he had put a, a pigskin of red dye inside the Bible. So blood's Invitation blood splattered all over the meeting house. Anyway, I mean, he, he was effectively the voice of anti-slavery uh, in the community that within, within uh, by 20 years, had come to its own awakening and began to establish a, the first, you know, organized American response to slavery by, by saying, to be a Quaker in good standing, you may not hold slaves. And people were expelled. People began to free their slaves. And the Quakers, the Quakers were central to the the rise of early abolitionism for the next uh, eighty years. And a lot of it simply had to do with the the simple matter of they believed in the inner light. They believed that that they were you know, radical, radical sectarians who believed in the sacredness of all things. And you, know, you can expand that to um, you know John Muir uh, wasn't a wasn't a Quaker, but he would have sympathized with with the uh, the need to hold nature sacred, just as Benjamin Lay had held nature sacred as well. So I like to I like to think of Benjamin Lay as kind of the the, the root of all abolitionism. He's effectively he was disowned at the time, and since then, in the last thirty or forty years, a number of Quaker meetings around the world have have reinstated him post-mortem uh, American meetings and uh, European meetings, English meetings. So this is fascinating. Now I have to look up more of this. Yeah. There's a great book by my old colleague, uh, uh, Marcus Redeker and uh, Benjamin Lay. Because I always think of Benizé as one of the earliest names, but that's later. It's a little bit later, and John Woolman is a little later, but he's like the prophet who speaks and influences them. And so did I get right? I'm grossly oversimplifying here, but it was a mix of the Enlightenment. Is it? I mean, you didn't say Enlightenment, but like the Enlightenment ideals that were growing in Europe combined with the scale of what was going on in North America or the, the cruelty, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it, Enlightenment or raw humanitarian vision, which may in fact, some of it was rooted in sort of evangelical evangelical thought you know, rather than enlightenment thought thinking. 
uh, spiritual visions, I'd say. So the the there there is an argument that people began to realize that you know come to terms with the distance problem that you just mentioned. You know, it's happening in the West Indies. I'd have to think about it when that distance came to them on such a regular basis as they became addicted to sugar. They began, you know, it took a little time for them to make, to dot the I's, to make the connections, but they, they gradually made the connections. The other side of this was people who had escaped slavery, testifying against slavery. I mean, I mentioned Benjamin Lay, but meanwhile, every African American was an abolitionist. Every African who had been in these, involved in the slave trade, was in some way, you know, quietly in his his or her own mind or publicly opposed to slavery. So when we talk about the rise of American anti-slavery as a, yes, the Quakers got going in the middle of the 18th century, but as we come out of the revolution, free people of color in the North began to really were the first wave of organized abolitionists to you know, to advance in this case, as you said just before, you know, it's my people. I need to free my people. But they were actively building organizations in Philadelphia, New York, and Boston to oppose slavery, racism, very explicitly, and to you know, really building the ground upon which a major expansion of uh, white abolitionism would happen in the early 1830s. So to clarify, they didn't just want their own freedom. They wanted to end the institution of slavery. Yes. Yeah. They wanted to end the institution of slavery. And they testified against it. And they and, and many of them had benefited from the, the revolution itself. I mean, the the the, the revolution uh, at its outset, there are men of color in the New England army in around Boston. Washington comes in and says, get these people out of here. We can't have essentially slaves involved in the in our fight for independence. And pretty quickly, even Washington comes around to realizing that the men of color were among the best soldiers in the army. And by the end of the war, he is, I mean, in the end, he, you know, in 1799, he freed his, freed his slaves. And he, there's a wonderful book by, my last name escapes me now, but it's called Imperfect God, Weinsick, uh, Imperfect God, where it tracks Washington's conversion from Virginia slaveholder to quiet critic of his peers, and it's really quite a story. So the revolution frees a lot of people. You serve in the army, you are free. So there are probably 10% of the, of the Continental Army were black, one way or another. And they uh, they then became, you know, they gradually got some land or, or got the, you know, a, a competency outside of, outside of slavery and began to apply the revolutionary vision of you know equality for all they were really the first to do it well now i have to focus on this point that now i understood washington freed his slaves in his will did he do it in his lifetime or no because he was enmeshed in the system and his wife was adamantly actually he didn't he freed his slaves <laughs> he freed his slaves uh, he said, "They will be free when, when Martha, when Martha dies." Uh-huh. And and there was a little bit of unhappiness and unrest and threatening noises. And Martha decided to move the schedule up because his slaves were 
get another Lancy. Well, if it's going to be when you die, maybe we'll just move that date up a little bit. There's something called strychnine. Um, oh, huh. right. It wasn't imp- unprecedented that people could quietly be quietly be assassinated, slaveholders. So, you know, we have this, you know, this. And the other reality was that, the you know, during the first decade after the revolution, it wasn't clear that slavery was going to continue. There was a lot of low-grade anti-slavery sentiment. And then cotton kicked in and the system strengthened massively. But what's important here is that the African-American anti-slavery movement of the 1810s and 20s influenced people with a little more money, but not much, not very much, because a lot of them actually helped to fund the Liberator. Literally, William Lloyd Garrison is converted by free people of color in in Baltimore to radical immediate abolitionism. And they, in fact, his, his subscriptions mostly came, I probably, well, I would say mostly, but disproportionately came from a black audience all over the North buying his buying the Liberator, which became a major, a major you know, vehicle of the rise of the rise of abolitionism that produced a, you know, a huge public, um, I mean, you have to think about, about what happens here. You know, we talk about movements. We don't, you know, we, the premise for a conversation is how do you build a movement? Yeah. What is striking is that this is the period, the 18, 1820s and 1830s, but really in a huge breakthrough in the late 1820s toward mass non-party organizations. There had been in both Britain and the United States sort of sedate, more reformed societies, I mean, a huge number of these societies forming to do better, do good things. And there were anti-slavery societies along those lines. But in 1830, 31, First, the temperance movement took off, and hundreds of thousands of people, more than half of the women, joined the temperance movement. And then a big number of the temperance, you know, within two or three years, the anti-slavery society organized itself, put out an appeal about the immorality of slavery, and significant numbers of the anti-temperance people moved over to abolitionism. So it becomes a mass movement in the middle of the the 1830s. And their plan was to look, slavery is obviously a sin. If we can if we could convert the slaveholders to this opinion, they'll understand and they will they will end slavery. <laughs> Didn't work. But they they blasted the South with I mean this is where technology comes in. The printing press was revolutionized in a steam press and advanced rotary technology and paper, the volume of paper, you know, paper production just went through the roof, printed production. Most of it was in New York City. So imagine it's like the internet. The internet hit about 20 years ago. Suddenly we're inundated with the net, with uh, WWW. Well, in the turn of the 20s to the 30s, the suddenly world was just Blastered with paper, uh, printed paper that and no one had ever seen it. To, you know, print to this volume, this volume before, and it scared a lot of people. The traditionalists were saying, "Well, how can because it, it came with it a, this vast popular uprising about a whole series of issues, one of which was slavery." 
we're, I feel like they're implementing what Clarkson and Wilberforce and right. Equiano did. Sure. But now, so now they have technology kicking in, sort of. Yeah. yeah. Like the internet. Because the, the earlier, I mean, the, the press run of a newspaper would be 500. It jumped to the to 10,000. Instead of 500 a week, it went to 10,000 a day. And so uh, Clarkson publishes a book. That's very nice. Publishes a pamphlet. There are about maybe a total of 5,000 pamphlets. They're talking, the anti-slavery societies were putting out tens of thousands of pamphlets in a given week. And just flooding the 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 public sphere with with their arguments. So there's just a you know there is a enormous explosion, is enormous amount of pushback too, and a lot of people, a lot of traditionalists, a wonderful book called the uh, the Gentleman of Property and Standing, who led riots against the abolitionists and the abolitionist presses in the mid 1830s, mid 1830s in northern cities. So there was there was opposition to abolitionism. Over the long term, it, what you really have is, you know, a movement culture, a movement organization that's outside of political parties. And in fact, it's, you know, it becomes a situation where you have, you had had this very broad undercurrent of, you know, slavery is a pretty nasty thing. We shouldn't be doing it, but, you know, it's not that important. It's too far away. And then suddenly in the middle of the 1830s, it's put in front of you. And so many commitments to the status quo have been built up that, and the the abolitionists were so intense that really their appeal, even in the North, was they were a minority. They were, uh, my guess is, I mean, there were a lot of people signed petitions. A lot of people signed petitions on the order of, on the order of almost half a million people signed petitions against slavery. My guess is that was about 10% of the total free population of the North from the age of 15 up. So, yeah, that's a lot of people, but it was still a minority. You have to go from that to the United States governed by force of arms and constitutional transformation ending slavery in 1863 and 1865. And the question is, how do you get from point A to point B? How do you get the movement into politics. And that's, you know, in our, my lifetime, probably your lifetime, we've seen the environmental movement go from movement into, into policy and law. And it's, you know, it's an interesting process how that happened. It hasn't, it's incomplete at this point. But a, a similar process unfolded in the 1840s and 1850s that injected slavery as an issue into the political process. And many of the issues that were of paramount importance right from 1787, but lurked in the background, didn't catch fire, people were concerned about them, but they were they didn't have a vehicle to make them work. Came and went to to the center stage in the 1850s, and again, these are issues that are on the front page of the Washington Post today. Did you read the Washington? Right, I want to. Yeah, <laughs> I, I haven't looked at the Washington Post today, but I'm going to come back to that. Okay. Uh, the reason I asked about when Washington freed his slaves is that I, there's a parallel that I'm drawing in my book, or not parallel, but that 
Thomas Jefferson, one of the great speakers and writers of freedom of all time, and he didn't free his slaves. And now I found a guy, Robert Carter III, I don't know if you know him, yeah. but he, in 1791, began the process of freeing 500 slaves, which I understand right. is the most number of slaves freed by any American right. before the Civil War, or voluntarily. And I contend that there's a lot of people today that are a lot like Thomas Jefferson. They're saying all the right things about sustainability, and they're not freeing their slaves. And they'll say, well, what I do doesn't matter. It's just one person's actions and so forth. But I want, I think that a lot of us would prefer to become a Robert Carter III. Now, he was a classmate of Thomas Jefferson's, so he could have influenced Thomas Jefferson. I think of Jefferson and Madison and Washington as, as they were slave owners from Virginia who could have, if they wanted to, influenced the writing of the Constitution. And perhaps if, I mean, they would have been more influential than almost anyone, I would think. And maybe... I mean, maybe the Civil War could have been a lot less. Maybe the maybe the Thirteenth Amendment could have come a lot sooner. Maybe the Thirteenth Amendment would have been in the Bill of Rights. I mean, this is really. I mean, this is actually. I mean, it's before cotton. Anyway, yes, before cotton. I mean, I guess the Robert Carters are an impressive, you know, example, and they are they are people who are converted to the to a revolutionary vision. There is a little bit of you know, a lot of, for I mean there's, there is there's a moment in Virginia and Maryland in the uh, North Carolina in the eighteen uh, the seventeen nineties where it looked like this might be happening and and there's really a considerable movement of people out of Virginia out of Maryland out of out of the Carol North Carolina in particular into Kentucky hoping to create a free state of Kentucky and then giving up on that moving to Ohio and Indiana, that would include Abraham Lincoln. Family. Yeah. yeah. Uh, following the same trail, they were members of an anti-slavery Baptist church in Kentucky. So there is this moment, there is this this admirable moment, and I've tracked it in the Methodist general meeting and uh, general conference meetings minutes. And you know, they Wesley establishes a strong anti-slavery language in the late 80s, and by the middle of the 1790s, he's back to slaves and masters shall shall honor each other, masters will be benevolent, and slaves will be obedient. Blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, they're under the surface, there are a lot of people who are trying to figure out how to free their slaves and move them and their slaves out of the, um, you know, how do they... And they literally, in many cases, couldn't figure out how to free their slaves, so they effectively let, kept them as de facto slaves, de jure slaves, but de facto they were living in independent households. But you know that could not that could not continue. And so, yes, it is a lost moment, and and a lot of it, you know, a lot of it comes down to states like South Carolina, most importantly, the state of South Carolina, which there is absolutely no. Trajectory after the death of, of John Lawrence. John Lawrence was a revolutionary cavalry officer who was of that generation. He wanted to he wanted to abolish slavery. He's killed in a skirmish in the last weeks of the war. Um, and his they've been making little movements, and then well, Lawrence is gone. That takes care of that. We don't have to worry about that. But South Carolina was on the verge of you know 
considering Lawrence's idea of raising black troops, but you know, really, we can't do that. Then what? You know, that becomes that undermines slavery at its core, and they they escape that that possibility when he died and the war was over. But South Carolina has enormous interest in continuing slavery. Uh, rice rice plantations are very productive, and the rice is giving way to long staple cotton, which is its own little boom in, on the coast in the 1790s. They want they wanted need slaves. They are importing slaves uh, head over fist through 1808 when it's abolished, and probably afterwards as well. I mean, actually, definitely afterwards as well. You know, illegally. So there there is a kind of a Virginia culture of slavery where people, the, the slaveholders are a little bit, you know, there's many among them who are Robert Carters. And then you have South Carolina. And South Carolina is, hold, you know, we're not fooling around. Slavery's here to stay. We benefit from slavery. And in effect, you know, South Carolina is, is was the the engine that would drive the 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 boat towards civil war because they were had they influenced the entire by emigration they, they sent slaves they sent their white sons to the west into the, the black belt of uh, Georgia Alabama Mississippi into Louisiana this will be the core of the secession south that would be founded on the basis of a continuing you know that <laughs> the purpose of states rights is to build a nation based on slavery. That was their plan. They were going to build a nation on slavery. And if they could, they would expand to Cuba. They would expand to Nicaragua. They would expand to Guyana. They had a vision of a Caribbean slave empire. And that was that was a big controversy in the middle of the 1850s. But they were they, they had a, an alternative vision of, of a slave future in the late 1850s that the only way to end it was to end it by force. And you go back to the 1780s, and in Congress and in the Constitutional Convention, people would get up, South Carolinians would get up and say, you lay a finger on, you even talk about slavery, and we will not join your union. So therein lies the, the big problem. You know, did Northern delegates sell out people of color to build a union? And it, it seems pretty, pretty clear that they did. They compromised to, to uh, in 1787 in Philadelphia to get that union. They had to keep their mouths shut about slavery as much as possible. So, yeah, there really wasn't too many ways. I mean, it's it when the push comes to shove, the South Carolina vision became the dominant vision. All right. So that was in so in the 1780s, South Carolina's got the coastal cotton. And rice that's driving it, and they they're not going to give that up. So the idea of having something anti-slavery in the Bill of Rights that wouldn't that would never happen. No. And you mentioned the people moving out to Georgia and so on. You didn't mention what I thought was a big factor was the cotton gin that I understood yeah. went from coastal cotton to cotton that could grow all over the place. Well, the cotton gin, Eli Whitney came down from Massachusetts to teach school. 1793, looked around, they were picking this short staple, sticky short staple cotton off the bowls. And by hand, they're getting nowhere with it. The, the, the two kinds of cotton, the long staple cotton was easily done by hand. It, they didn't need any machinery to do it. 
It was beautiful, long fibers. It came easily off the seeds. Upcountry, in the clay soils of the upcountry, that stuff wouldn't grow. But the long, the short sable cotton, the, the uh, grew, grew very nicely. But how do you get it off? So the, the, the cotton gin reactivated the, you know, allowed the spread of the short staple crop that then spread across, across all the way to uh, the Delta, in effect, to the Mississippi Valley. Do you know if his intent was to, I feel like when I look at the cotton gin, I think this is something designed to decrease labor. Was he, did he care? I, but I think of him as a tinkerer. Did he care about its effect on slavery or was he, was he just trying to make something, a device that was useful? Well, he was. He came from a town, town of Leicester, Mass, where they had been working on for the previous eight or nine years. They've been building these carding machines, and they were the, they looked just like cotton gins. They short pins on leather bindings and roll on rollers, and they would hard wool with them by cranking them on hand or by using water power. And kids, he would have done this. He would have been, you know, they farmed out the pushing of the pins through the letter to school children. So for the previous 10 years, every kid within 10 miles of the carding machine shops had spent time pushing pins through leather. He goes down to Georgia and he looks around and says, well, you got a carding problem. This is a carding issue. And it was kind of like, here's a problem to solve. I don't think he really thought through the implications of what he was doing. At least right there. I mean, he, he probably... I mean, there are a number of New Englanders who moved south and said, oh, I kind of like this, and became major slaveholders. So it wasn't the boundary between New England and the South was not as, as hard and fast as as it would be. Now, obviously, Eli Whitney returns to back to New England and becomes a weapons manufacturer. But it was sort of being helpful to his boss is, is really what it came down to when he was working in, in uh, Georgia. So the effect on on it taking cotton into the kingdom yeah. that it became was like an accidental. He kind of yeah. It was yeah, here's a problem to solve. I'll get them out of this little bottleneck. And these cotton gins would you know they would apply steam power to them in the south. They would you know the the the, the cotton gin that Eli Whitney Whitney invented was a little machine that you crank by hand. Within thirty years, forty years, they were they had huge steam steam gins, and they you know they would. They were running these things through, uh, running the huge amounts of cotton through these steam-powered uh, machinery. All right. So now let's jump back to where you were before, that you were saying that there was an undercurrent of anti-slavery sentiment. It grew into a movement. And the question was how to turn it from an apolitical movement into a political movement. And also for us today, right? how do we learn from history to, I mean, I think a lot of people saw a war coming. And, but I don't think ever did. I think, and you were saying that they were, the abolitionists were trying to persuade the plantation owners through moral suasion, things like that. Exactly. And didn't get anywhere because I would say they were corrupted by, I mean, it, it would, well, they had their beliefs that this was a good thing to do. And. Well, they, they, they got nowhere because Andrew Jackson shut the mails down, the riots against them. Effectively, there was a, a movement orchestrated from the federal government and then at, by the parties to suppress the abolitionists. So there was a contest between, so they, here you are in the late 1830s and you have this movement culture that is, you know, 
let's call them hippies, you know, people who are undermining the moral fabric of the country, who are demanding for radical change. And conservatives of various kinds said, we will stand with the status quo. And if that means standing with slavery, fine. And then slaveholders saying, we have to stand with slavery. So they, now the question is, where were these slaveholders with most significant power? And this is what I want to get back to because it pertains to the article on the front page of the Washington Post today about the U.S. Senate. Uh We have been asking questions about the badly constructed framework of elections and institutional power that is produced by those elections, manifested most obviously now in the United States Senate, which gives the same number of senators to Wyoming and to California. To the point that, you know, a citizen of Wyoming is 10 or 20, 30 times the electoral clout as a citizen of California. This is not equal. So what, you know, the, the, the reality here is people keep at well, the reality is this wasn't really a slaveholder's plot. This was a small state plot. New Jersey wanted to have equal representation. But the thing that was a slaveholder's plot was something called the three-fifths compromise which basically they said, the South said, look, we want to have the House be based on total population, including slaves. All the slaves should be counted for representation. And the Northern representatives really wanted to have no free population only. They compromised on three-fifths based on a ratio that had been used for taxes in the early 1780s. So the three-fifths language, extremely important is put into the Constitution. And that basically means that that the South had, for example, in, in 1800, the South would have had 46 representatives representing their free population and another 14 who were based on the slave population. And they still had a little bit fewer than the, the North did in general. But so what the South had to do was to figure out a way to get some allies in the northern among the northern representatives, and they could prevail. And then in the Senate, pretty quickly by the 1790s, there uh, Tennessee and Ohio, you know, et cetera. There's a balancing act. They start to balance the number of free state and slave state emissions, so that the Senate would be split right down the middle. And that meant that de facto, that the South would always end up in. So what this this produced was what the North started calling in the late 1830s, the slave power. And that this was was a major term, that a major battle cry for Northerners over the course of the next uh, 20, 30 years, uh, well, 20 years, because and this, uh, and, but it went all the way back. There were rumblings about the power of the South in the federal government back in the 1780s and 90s, back to the constitutional uh, ratification. People said, how can there be this three-fifths thing? This is going to give too much power to the South. Well, that it, it, it ended up doing that. So what we have here is a situation where, where effectively the, of effectively minority rule. Because obviously the slaves were not being, the enslaved people were not voting for their representatives. So white Southern voters had far more voting power than North Northern free voters who included some people of color. 
non-alike, not quite as extreme as, but not, you know, it's the same idea as, you know, California and Wyoming. California-Wyoming distinction is wild that the Cal, that the Wyoming should have the same representation to California in the Senate. It's completely off the charts. But the, the northern northern public was aware of this gradually and became more and more aware of this as time went by and started calling it the slave power in the late 1830s. And the northern northern um, representatives would get up in Congress and list the number of presidents who had been slaveholders, the number of uh, vice presidents, the numbers of secretary of state, the numbers of secretary of war. And they would point to the power of of the slave interest in the federal government. There is a theory of that lay behind this that was developed by John C. Calhoun. It's called like the theory of the concurrent majority. We really need to we need to know we need to understand this. People need to think about this now. He wrote this and he was thinking about this as the census showed more and more northern, you know, that gradually what's going to be happening is the population of the North is growing faster than the South because of immigration. And by the 1850s, in fact, they really got a preeminent edge in the House of Representatives. He could see it coming, and he developed the idea of the concurrent majority, which meant that, no, we don't have numerical majorities. Mere, quote-unquote, mere numerical majorities are tyrannical. We must have interests of property and interests of culture, a.k.a. Slavery must have a veto power in the halls of Congress. So, you know, the significance of 1860 is that, you know, Lincoln won, didn't win by much, but he won uh, based on massive support in the North, and Southerners had controlled the federal government. I mean, this is the irony. When we talk about states' rights, the South had controlled the federal government since 1800. With one or two exceptions, John Quincy Adams was was a president for one term, <laughs> and, but otherwise, you know, and, and there are a few other people. Harrison lasted briefly. He was from, but he was from old Virginia family. He came from Indiana. Um, he was he he lasted what for six weeks or something, and then John uh, Tyler was uh, John Tyler took over, and then Zachary Taylor was in uh, was a pro Northern Southerner. In 1850, 1848, he died in 1850. So, but basically, the rest of the time, slaveholder, slaveholders, rural slaveholders controlled the federal government. And the 1860 election was going to reverse this for the first time in 60 years. So the South said, we must defend our interests and culture. And South Carolina led the way to secede. So, we live in a situation now where, you know, really it's it's energy. Again, slaves were energy in a certain sense, but the energy is more obvious now. If you, if you break down the composition of the House and Senate and their voting patterns by fossil fuel versus non-fossil fuel states, it becomes very clear that we're talking about oil power. Oil power is the 21st century equivalent of the slave power, and oil power is the thing that is, you know, the central problem global for the uh, for uh, for sustainability and for for the uh, avoiding the worst of the climate change and disastrous climate change. 
uh, and really, I hate to be so blunt, but I will, the one force that stands in the way of significant movement is the American Republican Party, globally. Forgetting about the Saudi Arabian government, princes, you know, but you know, the Republican Party stands with oil, or a fossil fuel party. It would be nice if we could do what the abolitionists were not able to do of persuading or leading the, well, in their case, leading the, the plantation owners to voluntarily <laughs> give up their slaves. I mean, if, we had, if they had known that a war was coming where hundreds of thousands of their family members would die, perhaps that might have been more persuasive. I'm not sure. I'm trying to think of, can we learn from history and say, we don't want to, they didn't change back then. And, like, don't make the mistake that they did. Uh, that would be one aspect. Another one would be, the, if you could go back there, oh, man, I'd like to yeah. think that if I were stuck in 18, if someone snapped their fingers, a genie snapped his fingers, and I ended up in the body of an 1850s slave owner in Alabama, that I would free my, but it's me inside, right? I would think that I would free my slaves, even though everyone around me for, I don't know, 500,000 miles, would get mad at me. I would still think that I would do that. And I think that that tells me if a future generation coming back to now would want to stop polluting. And can we learn from history and influence them more? Because the alternative is not a civil war. The alternative is is environmental, is collapse in which we're either over polluted or we can't feed well, I, I'm, what I'm hoping is that we're in, instead of, I mean, the horrors of the Civil War, <laughs> I'm hoping that we are in the midst of the same kind of transformation and that it's being, I mean, I, I have been just so amazed by the power of civil society and the division of powers in this country so that people who, who swear an oath to state and nation who have, who have, I mean, there's a whole theory of what is the nature of power, what is the nature of the state. The state in the United States is divided up into tens and tens of thousands of people raising their right hand and swearing to uphold the Constitution. And that really matters. We've seen that work in the last, in this country, in the last, um, the last, since 2017, that people, that attorneys general, prosecutors, et cetera, are standing by their oaths and not... Uh, so we've lived through, and we are living through a, you know, incredible constitutional turmoil, not unlike the uh, the 1850s. I just hope the 1850s, 1860s, what I hope is that as we get through it without without the, the bloodshed side, we've seen a little bit of it, but not as much as I was worried that we might. And do it by electoral means. I mean, and... I personally think that the that in the end, the those people who really have an interest in moving this country forward will turn out for Joe Biden. I'm really, you know, it occurred to me. Well, let's put it this way: over the last the last three years, I'm not the only person to be just amazed by what Biden has achieved. This uh, so-called Inflation Reduction Act, when this stuff, this is the biggest funding for sustainability that has ever, you know, 
that has ever been put through. And we have been watching Clinton and Obama, forgetting about Bush, Clinton and Obama do nothing for 16 years, being essentially boxed in by by conservative Democrats, but also most most obviously by by the oil Republican Party. And Biden was able to do something. You know, and we're seeing, you know, again, Obama did achieve something with the with the med, the the ACA, the 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 uh, Affordable Care Act that provided the essentially the model. But Biden has been able to do this for for sustainability and it isn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it is massive. And we're starting to see the effects of it. You know, it's something that will build over time. So we have to we have to get through the next year's election and you know, then there's other anti democratic forces out there. There's the Supreme Court and and you know Really, the Supreme Court just needs to be reformed. I mean, you really need to say that there's, they have to understand the Supreme Court has been, has, there's been a coup d'etat against the Supreme Court, and we need to have something that will be on the order of the Eighth or Ninth Judiciary Act. I mean, you know, the Supreme Court is, is not defined by the Constitution. It just say there shall be a, it shall, shall be a Supreme Court. It doesn't even say what they're supposed to do. There are proposals out there that tell us saying we should change what the Supreme Court can can act upon, and we can also change the composition of the court. We can say, as is being proposed, that, well, senior justices, you've been on for 20 years. Here's a gold watch. You keep your salary. You become a senior justice. Thank you for your time and service, and we'll call you back if we need you. But all anybody with more than 20 years service moves on. And we bring in new justices on a regular basis. Nobody ever expected these justices to live as long as they, I mean, they expected the last 10 years. People were made Supreme Court justice in their twilight years, and they died, <laughs> to be very blunt, in the 19th century. And we don't expect people, they never expected that we this permanent uh, zardom of uh, justices in the living and determining for, for decades at a time, what the country's going to be doing. So there are things to be done, and, and I'll push the edge of the envelope one tiny little bit. occurred to me today, can, will we be talking about a, an analog? Who is Who could we be talking about in relation to, aw shucks, Joe Biden, kind of Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, common touch, kind of bumbling guy? Today I was emailing with somebody about, about Lincoln. And it occurred to me, wait a minute, they were saying the same things about Lincoln. Lincoln was a fool. Lincoln was a bumbler. Lincoln was uneducated. Lincoln was this, Lincoln was that. And Lincoln got things done. So I, I do wonder whether, you know, come back in 30 years and people will be will uh, talk about Joe Biden having the same kind of Lincoln-esque impact on the country. Have I shared with you my thoughts on changing culture. And I don't think I have. One thing that drives me is that most efforts, people go through these stages of learning about the environment. First, people are ignorant and then they learn a bit and then they learn yeah. that maybe there's something they can do and they go through all these stages. And it seems to me that the one of the later stages, and, and we lose people at every stage. So not everyone who makes stage one reaches stage two and so forth. Now, I think people realize that if we could magic, if I could magically 
turn all the pollution levels back to pre-industrial and restore all the extinct species and put everything back to the way it was. So everything's healthy and safe. But we didn't change our culture. We would end up right back where we are again. We'd invent different technologies and we do we'd restore the pollution and depletion that we have. And so I think we must change culture or else we all the laws and carbon taxes and so forth would just stave off the inevitable. But really, I think many of it, a lot of the things to make things more efficient would actually accelerate our path. But it seems that everyone who reaches that stage, which is a very small number, then say, well, changing cultures, that's too hard. So they step back and say, well, what can I do within culture? But if they, so they'll protest or they'll mm-hmm. propose legislation or they'll invent something. But the effect seems to me of stepping on the gas, thinking it's the break, wanting congratulations, which doesn't change things. And so I, my goal is to change culture. And when I look at changing culture, that's what abolitionism was doing, not just freeing slaves, but you have to get overwhelming support. And the more I learn about the 13th Amendment and how impossible it was to envision it passing or even consider, like, imagine that it could anything about it. Uh-huh. And yet today, I, I think there's a very small number of people in America who would want to repeal the 13th Amendment. And the idea hit me of an amendment like the 13th Amendment today, which through lots of research and twists and turns led me to John Locke's Two Treatises on Government, where he talks about property, a limited government of life, liberty, protecting life, liberty, and property. And the property you can't take from nature unless you leave enough as good in common for others. I'm not sure if I've quoted him exactly right. And so my idea is to have an amendment like the 13th saying two big things. One thing is you can't take from nature unless you leave enough as good in common for others, quoting John Locke, who I feel like the two treatises on government, I read like a blueprint for the Declaration of Independence and Constitution. And I understand him to, I don't think of this as politically left or right. It's seems both directions seem to draw on, on Locke. And then this other thing, which is that if I light a cigarette in in a, a bar in New York, I've broken the law. Now, the law, why the law passed, I think, well, unlike prohibition, a c- cigarette smoke hurts other people. It's not protecting me from myself. It's protecting other people from carcinogens, mm-hmm. which is to say, I think fundamentally it wasn't promoted this way, but... I would be destroying life, liberty, and property. I'm I'm hurting others. But if I buy an airplane ticket, I'm paying for millions of times more pollution coming out the back of the jet. (laughs) And well, we could say for a long time that we would think that it'd disperse and and go away because the earth is so big, they didn't notice. Well, that era is gone and we know that that pollution is not going away. I mean, some of the pollution will go away, but some greenhouse gases will linger in carcinogens and endocrine disruptors, not just airplanes, but lots of other industrial waste and things like that. And so I have this idea of the, of the second clause would be you can't put into nature or take out from nature what would destroy life, liberty, and property. And now, do I think a, a, an amendment would pass right away? I don't know. I mean, certainly I wouldn't go to Senate right now or it wouldn't go to Congress right now and try to propose it. But from a leadership perspective, to say, well, in 1827, which is the earliest I could find a record of someone mentioning what you know, an abolitionist amendment... That must have seemed ludicrous at the time. And yet, without that vision, I think that vision helped make it happen. 
of course, there was a civil war and all sorts of machinations and, and politics. But mm -hmm. if the goal is to change culture and something like that has happened before, I think from a leadership perspective, it gives people something to rally around. It gives something and also to learn about how did that thing pass? Can we pass something like that today? Can that help people's envision a future that has a lot of parallels to, I mean, how many people in 1840 could have imagined right. no slaves? And I think they would have thought, I mean, on these quotes of saying like, democracy requires slavery and the civilization will collapse without slavery, which is very similar to what people say today. Of, you talk about living sustainably and the most common response is, you want to return to the Stone Age. Yeah. You want to die 30. And... I think that the same emotions are driving the responses today that drove them then. Which is to say, it's not rational. It's, I mean, well, that's where the, you know, the communication side matters, and I mean, you have to change the culture side, you know. And I wouldn't say we may have a difference of opinion here, but I would say that this is, and this has been happening. <laughs> I mean, it, it isn't done. Uh, there's no question about that. It's not like we have that the culture that the country is been converted to sustainable principles. But, you know, the reality is, you know, I'm speaking to someone who is who is living and breathing the, <laughs> being a model to all, but not everybody's going to go the, the distance that you've gone. But on the other hand, the, and, and yes, you know, the newspapers are concerned that the demand for electric cars is not what they really thought it might be, but you know, if you look at this in the long term, the long five-year, long 10-year term, you know, we're on the cusp of, of a shift that, you know, it's happening all around us. And the difference, the light years of difference in culture that uh, we have between the 1960s and the present is, is stunning. So, you know, I don't think it's a totally lost cause. You might have difference of opinion, but... I mean, I, I think that the the pendulum, the pendulum. It's not a pendulum. It's the it's the wave is not moved as fast as we wanted to, but it's moving, and it's moving faster now than it ever has before. So I didn't hear you say what I said sounded crazy. No, no, I don't think it's crazy because it's already happening. I mean, that's my point. I mean, I think it's already everything. What you're thinking about is already being absorbed into people talking about, you know. Fairly normal, normal, no, normie, <laughs> middle class, suburban homeowners talking about recycling may not be much, but you know these conversations didn't happen ten years ago. And buying electric cars, and exactly whether people are taking fewer flights, I'm not sure. But um, I, 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 I went to an event over in England. That, Hold on, but one of my colleagues, American colleagues, and I got, as I got there, I said to him, you know, what's the carbon impact of this meeting here? And, and he just snarled at me. But now we would just do this on Zoom without even thinking about it. People are saying, I feel like there's a lot of Thomas Jeffersons out there or people who are saying the way to end slavery is to expand into more states, which people said. And the, I mean... More electric cars is not fewer cars. It's still more roads. And yeah, people yeah. aren't, people constantly talk about how they meet by Zoom. 
but then they fly for other reasons. So if people really, so people talk about, let's say the circular economy or hydrogen economy, and they say, they talk about this like it's sustainable, but they don't do the numbers and they keep finding out if they do the numbers, I mean, a circular economy really means you can't take, you can't put any non-renewable resources in there. They always say it means recycling better and things like that, but really it means, it means what I'm, what I'm saying. Like you can't take from nature unless you leave enough as good in common for others. So if people really believe that these initiatives lead to sustainability, this amendment would, to me, how am I going to say this? If you believe that a circular economy really would work, then you believe that this amendment would work too. If you don't believe that a circular economy would work, then shut the fuck up. I mean, you're lying and you know it. You're just keeping things going. So it's if people really believe that recycling and all these little things will add up, then this is this is putting a bow on it, on what you already believe. And if they don't believe it, I think, well, we should really get that sustainable airplane fuel is, it's not here now. If it's ever going to be here, the fastest, most effective way to get there is to not allow jet flights with you know, with fossil fuel, with uh, kerosene, with jet fuel. Great. I don't have a solution. I do know that my only point is this, that that I think things are moving faster than I ever expected them to. And you're saying not, they're not moving fast enough. So, well, that's not, and I, and, and the thing is, you're probably, you're probably right. And I'm, you know, I'm complicit in this, uh, in this process of whistling to the graveyard here. Well, I'm not, I'm not trying to persuade you. What I'm really saying here is that I have these ideas that came through learning a history that you know a lot more than I do. And so, number one, I'm looking for some big thing that I'm missing. Like, Josh, you forgot about blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my God, facepalm. But, <laughs> and if not that, then what are my parallels from history fair parallels? Are the, is it, what more can I learn from history so that we can yeah. do faster, persuade people more effectively, avoid the potential collapse that would be, to my eyes, as far as I can tell, way more serious than the Civil War? Yeah. yeah. No, it would be horrific. I mean, there is this problem that, I mean, as an historian, I have to, I have to every now and then say, look, we're living in such a totally different world that we can't talk about. I mean, we can talk around the edges about lessons from history, but don't get to work up about it. We live in such a fundamentally different place. We don't have as much space and room due to our own, you know, why are there almost 8 billion people in the world suddenly? Because nobody wanted to see people dying. You know, there was a certain, you know, we can't have all these people die. We need people to stay alive. It's uh, if we can preserve life, then we should. And that has been, you know, a big part of the of the irony of what's happened, which is that we don't want to see people dying, so we figure out ways to improve public health. And that's, you know, the basic reality is we live in a world that is so unbelievably different from 150 years ago. Now. On the other hand, political processes have unfolded. You know, there are things that have happened that do provide something like a lesson. We 
don't want to get too specific in, in saying, well, this is an exact analog to where we are now, because I don't think that's particularly useful. And then we have to, you know, the amendments, you know, good luck with amendments. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> boy, you know, how are we going to have an amendment? Uh, or there's a huge process that involves uh, two-thirds of the states or three-quarters. Yeah. Three-quarters, yeah, right. Okay, I can't even remember what the, the right If depth. only two-thirds, yeah. Yeah, right. So it's, you know, there lies a small problem how to get that to get that under control. So there are these, you know, within the parameters of what is doable, though, or, you know, what I never expected to get where we are in the last two years. You know, when you mentioned the population, I think of sort of a parallel to Eli Whitney would be Norman Borlaug's Green Revolution, which is actually short versus long stemmed. Not, I mean, he saw people dying and wanted to save them, and so he figured out a way to do it, and he didn't really anticipate that it would also draw so much, rely so much on fossil fuels and deplete so much aquifers and water. So, yeah, the population... Require all that ammonia. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, which is to say natural gas. Yeah, right. And he just wanted to help. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then even he joined the Population Media Center calling it the population monster was his term for this growth. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I really wanted to get from you some of this American history and abolitionism. And I've learned a lot. I feel like we've barely, I mean, obviously we've scratched the surface because there are libraries and libraries filled with volumes and volumes of, of what we're talking about. Of course, I'm not trying to get a, a degree in history. I'm trying to <laughs> yeah, yeah, develop an understanding of a story, I mean, how we got here, something actually did, ha- you know, history actually did happen to lead us to where we are. Right. And some things are more relevant than others. And to see if there's a precedent for getting ourselves out of this mess in a way that people find rewarding and want to do. Well, I think it's a less than a, you know, is it a precedent or is it a a better understanding of how we've gotten into to where we are and what the structures are behind the impediments. I mean, for example, I mean, I'll, I'll go to an area that is not uh, a topic we've been discussing, which is the Second Amendment, guns. If everybody who talked about the Second Amendment would make the point, the purpose of the Second Amendment was put forward by Patrick Henry in the Virginia ratified convention who said, if we don't have guns, the slaves will rebel and we will be overwhelmed. We have to have, we have to have control of our militia and we have to have, we, everybody has to be armed. All white people have to be armed. If every time people, you know, you probably don't even know that. You don't even know. Yeah, I thought it was to limit the government's power or protection against the government. that's just... C-R-A-P, crap. It's got to do with slavery. It's got to do with slave slave rebellions. And if everybody who talked about the Second Amendment would actually talk in those terms, it would be helpful because that's the origin, the guts of the the Second Amendment have to do with slavery. And so, you know, just as let us talk about, you know, the structures of minority rule in this country today, well, you know, in a certain sense, We've forgotten that there were huge structures in the past 
that were deeply implicated with slavery that were working tooth and nail to deny majority rights to the majority of the population. And and here we're talking about voters. We're not even talking about enslaved people. So there's a long tradition. And so this is a this is a, a struggle that needs to be fought. It's not like there's some magic bullet that we can we can magic wand. There are people with deep pockets and deep memories, and they remember this stuff. And it seems to me that the progressive sustainable forces really have a very minimal understanding of what really matters here and you know where this stuff comes from i mean really in the end you know the issue of slavery lurks behind an amazing amount of things and if you were to talk about it in those terms then we would get a little further down the pike for example talking about the way minority rule in, in structures energy interests you know this is not the first time this has happened and just to have people think about that would be you know part of that culture changing process. I have to jump back to big history here. I forget if I said this last time, but my understanding of when agriculture so I'm jumping way back, but I believe speak hopefully speaking your language, that when we entered the Holocene or had this brief respite from the Pleistocene, that agriculture so for the first time surpluses happened right and for the first time the conditions for a dominance hierarchy formed which my understanding of how dominance hierarchy it took a little, it took a little while to get there but yeah, yeah 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 well the conditions of agriculture being possible yeah and some would say inevitable that a dominance hierarchy forms when there's a resource that can be controlled right and no alternative to it right so now something else happens with the surplus which is that one okay, so now one person has to protect it, and so there you're, you're going to have it. It's not once you have these surpluses, it's it's inevitable that a dominance hierarchy is going to form because someone's got to protect it, and someone else can come and get it. Yeah. Then also, if you have, I think a couple things are going to happen. One, if you have more than enough food, the population is probably going to rise, and you're, and you're going to not have enough of other things, minerals and other stuff. So you're going to need to get that from other places, and also you're using up the soils. You become unsustainable. Which means you require things from outside of your immediate area, which means that you have to grow. And when you have a dominance hierarchy, the competitive strategy is going to form that you're going to have to militarize, you're going to have to have a culture that can defend, you're going to develop culture of arts and sciences and things like that. You're also going to develop ways of, of defending and fighting. And so, and you, the people at the top of the hierarchy are going to be, they don't want to lose their power because if they lose their power, they can, if they've been taken for others, the others are going to want revenge. Right. So they, we create a culture where they must, the people at the top will develop beliefs and a culture that I belong here, divine right of kings sort of things or trickle down economics in, in more modern terms. <laughs> so they have to stay where they are and they have to expand. So we have imperialism, and that's going to grow out from the Fertile Crescent, the Yangtze, Mesoamerica, and these are just going to—an individual empire may ebb and flow, it may collapse, but overall they're going to keep growing until—well, I think the Eurasian landmass, they were starting to get—I mean, in Europe, they are starting to— 
use up all the forests. And then they discover two new continents. Actually, first they discover the Baltics. Now, this is something that I'm very obsessed with these days. They start in the first America, the first new world was the Baltics. And they, they meaning Poland, Russia, Sweden, and they were looting them for everything they could. The amount of stuff coming out of the Baltics was amazing. Anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm getting off topic here. but Well, so that what you're saying, all the stuff rooted in slavery is to me rooted in dominance hierarchy that once the once agriculture once we had surpluses that were unsustainable then the rest was kind of water flowing downhill and it was going to keep happening as long as empires could expand once they can't expand anymore and at first it was expanding by land once you got oil then you could expand with the energy because you can make land more arable that wasn't arable before but once there's nothing more to expand into, then it can't continue. And I feel like that's the time that we live in. But when, so when you say we have to trace all the, that how much slavery is behind things, I think it's, slavery was one manifestation of, I mean, first you have imperialism, if you take their land, then it's colonialism, if you take their labor, it's slavery, but these are all manifestations of this dynamic that was set up when you had surpluses that were not sustainable. Yeah, it's, a good way to sum it all up, and one way to, to one way to think about this is is an approach that a lot of people are taking now about the problem of the so called Anthropocene, and to say, look, Anthropos means people, and we're, that, that all of humanity is responsible for what's happened in the last hundred fifty years in terms of the degrading of the environment. No, it's actually a capitalist. It's actually a, it's been driven by, by interests, your dominance hierarchy framework, merchant capital and industrial capital to, to make as much money as possible. Now they would counter that there are benefits that flow from all that, but the consumption of energy and disregard for sustainability in nature. But uh, the reality is that, I mean, that's the issue then, because how much is, yeah, are we talking about the interests of small groups of people who are driving this entire process? And when you really do wonder about the mega billionaires of the top 0.01%, how exactly did they make all their money? <laughs> well, I think partly is that the material conditions force them into a position where they have to do these things. I mean, the extreme case would be the rulers of North Korea. If they wanted to say, let's switch to a democracy, all the people in jail that got free and all their families would want revenge. And so they, they can't do that. You need a witness protection program beyond any witness protection program before. And so they're kind of, I don't have an empathy for, well, it's, it's not my question of empathy, but they're as stuck in the system as anyone else. And to change a system is to recognize that, I mean, partly we have to recognize that they're not just being selfish, they're also stuck. Yeah. And we have to change the, the situation for them as well, which I think is why it's so useful to learn the history, especially the deep history of... <laughs> it's not like these Europeans came to America and said, hey, let's start slavery from scratch. No, they didn't, they didn't start from scratch, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. They brought, they brought it with them. 
And for that matter, the Europeans were once, I mean, people once lived in Europe in egalitarian groups and empires came up from, I guess, fundamentally from, or ultimately from the Fertile Crescent. Or the Romans. <laughs> right. Yeah, the Romans from the Greeks and the Greeks from the from the Levant and the Levant from the Fertile Crescent. Yeah. It feels like all of, everything's been water flowing downhill from this start of the... Right. Well, there, the problem becomes it's so, once you, once you get to these terms, and this is where, you know, there's a little bit of a problem, which is that it's so big that it's difficult for people to, yeah, it's just, yeah, to assimilate, and you have to you have to tone it down a, a tad. Uh, but and I, I run with that problem all the time. People people look at my book and just kind of just kind of shake their head and don't want to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, we're at ninety minutes, and I could keep going. And it's also Friday, and it's dark because it's almost a solstice. Can I? Sure, I want to keep going, but <laughs> the. Uh-huh. See, the Enlightenment was a big, I mean, there was a big movement in Europe to oppose, I guess, going back to the Magna Carta, and the, the trends of pushing back against, if you want to change, if the culture we have is water flowing downhill, one of the things to do is to change the terrain, is to change the path matrix for all these different people in different places. The Enlightenment values restoring, loosely speaking, restoring democracy and giving the people, say, and this is over the course of a long period of time with lot, for lots of different reasons. To me, I, like I'm a fan of the Enlightenment values. And what I conclude is that there's reason and science and things like that. John Locke had what I, what I was trying to quote before. I call that his stewardship clause. And it seems like it's been lost. And I feel like I contend that that was a Enlightenment value that we lost. I think mm-hmm. we lost it partly because mm-hmm. from the perspective of the Europeans, there was, from their perspective, roughly speaking, infinite land and infinite energy. That is, they were switching from wood to coal. And as far as they could tell, there was an infinite amount of coal. And they found this arable land that was two continents. As far as they could tell, there was no end to it. And so if there actually is infinite land and energy and therefore infinite food, then actually not sustainability is fine. Just keep moving on to a new place because infinity is really big, but it's not infinite. And so, but they dropped stewardship. And my idea of this constitutional amendment is, is like a physical manifestation of restoring an, a value that is actually a core enlightenment value, which actually, I mean, for that matter, John Locke didn't make it up. I mean, indigenous cultures have been practicing it in their ways, the sustainable ones for I don't know, 200,000 years. So it's both an enlightenment value and a traditional human core value, an indigenous wisdom value. And if we, the amendment is not, you know, the 13th amendment is saying no slavery. This is really saying, it's it's not saying, it is on the face of it saying you can't do something, but it's really, you can't affect others, which I think is what government is for. So yeah, it's really a big bunch of stuff to put together. Well, there, yeah, the problem with well, I mean, there's many problems, but the the problem with the voices on the uh, on sustainable side is moot out their traditional values, and then there's something we call the golden rule, which is do it others as you end up doing. In other words, don't don't take more than, than 
than is rightfully yours. Leave something behind for somebody else. Leave something behind for the future. There's actually a whole philosophy of, of what do we owe the future? What do we owe the future generations? Formal philosophy. I must admit, I've forgotten the guy's name who developed this, but um, I mean, it's sort of obvious that sustainable, I mean, it's the essence of it. Sustainable policy would is, recognizes the rights and interests of the future as trends as at least equal to our own. Whereas the other position says, no, we will get through one way or another. Well, so I'm, I'm not hearing I've made any giant mistakes. I'm probably speaking too glibly and missing a lot of details. <laughs> but, I mean, your book, Rough Journey, really got me, put a lot of things together. Thanks. That I wanted to make sure, yeah, thank you. And I want to make sure I wasn't missing anything or getting anything really off. How effective it will be, that's another big story, a, a big question of, can I put this together in a way that actually persuades people who have who are benefiting from polluting and depleting and imperialism to say, yeah, I'm going to stop doing this. And to realize that what I think we looking back get, when if I look back at plantation owners, I think that they would say, I don't want to give this up. But actually, if they really got the full picture, they might agree that it's better for even for themselves to to give it up. And maybe not the top plantation owners, but there's a lot of slave owners and voters who are not that, you know, and maybe we can pull off what they were not able to pull off before the Civil War based on knowing more, based on the extra history and examples. Yeah. yeah. Well, or, and avoiding some of the pitfalls there is uh, a colleague, a New York colleague of yours, Stephanie McCurry, who has a spectacular argument about the South, which was basically that you may not own slaves, but you control your families. You are a patriarch. So, therefore, and you have an interest in a white South. And so there are other ramifications from uh, that cultural ramifications that tied into the defense of slavery, the psychological ramifications. And the, the, I think the lesson is to minimize, figure out ways to limit the, the cultural backlash, the cultural connections that are made. And there, too, there are a lot that are enmeshed in the, in all call the fossil fuel complex and the, the, uh, had, and their response to the, to, I mean, two hippies on a mountaintop in Vermont. That's how I always talk about about the original solar. You know, I mean, again, this is you go back to what's happened in the last ten years, which is instead of a couple of guys on a mountaintop with a with a solar panel, which is costing enormous amounts of money, solar panels are proliferating everywhere. And you know, the, again, you might argue that's just not enough, but I see it as a sign of of uh, that. Things that were once like the abolitionists, kind of a minority view, just simply by making it, making a new culture around it, they able to they're able to affect affect actual change. Yeah, I talk about solar as it's like methadone or suboxone. It's not the hard <laughs> stuff. 
But if you have a plan to get off the hard stuff, it yeah. can be helpful. Yeah. And so, you know, there are people in AA, AA I've had a lot of people on who are addiction specialists uh, and they point out like AA often says any use of anything is use. And so you should be not using anything. And then other people say methadone and suboxone can work. And so they're fans of it. And so I take my solar panels up to the roof and I got a lithium battery. So I'm not, I, I'm on my suboxone. I'm, I'm using way less than I was before. And yeah, it's one thing to, to get off of uh, heroin if it's just you. If you're in the middle of crack row, so I live in right by Washington Square Park and there's an area where there's a lot of drug use and they themselves, uh, I've talked to them and they describe it as crack row. So I use their terminology. So if you're trying to stop when everyone around you is not stopping, that's really hard. Like living sustainably isn't hard. Living sustainably when everyone around you is living unsustainably is hard. That's a cultural thing. But as more people shift, then I think dropping, polluting. Well, dropping that's, my... that's, that's, you know, the, the incremental game. And again, I, my feeling is a lot of the incremental game has happened over the last uh, the last 30 or 40 years. And, you know, it sounds like a long time, but it's it's possible that we're going to be seeing, again, you may call me Pollyanna. I have a lot of people call me Pollyanna for you know, being too optimistic, but, you know, that we will look back in 30 years and say, oh, okay, well, the, the trajectory was, again, not unlike the anti-slavery movement. Benjamin Lay was 130 years before they before the Emancipation Proclamation, and it took a long time. And so the, the you know, we're talking about John Muir effectively as being the the Benjamin Lay of the um, of the sustainability movement. I mean, it's probably the wrong person to credit, but you know that we're now we're now in the we're probably not in the eighteen late fifties. We're probably actually in eighteen sixty two and eighteen sixty three. We are in the transitional moment. Things are happening, and you know. I personally, you know, I almost feel like uh, certain political <laughs> machinations that happen on a on a day to day basis are, you know, the flailings of the Confederacy in in its final year and a half. And uh, if we're in eighteen sixty two, then so this amendment is only three years from passing, or it's eighteen sixty four. Yeah, right. Yeah, your, your amendment may well be close coming up soon. Let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's something you mentioned that I didn't think of, which is that. You said that since abolitionism was not connected to a party, both parties attacked it. Yeah. But gradually, gradually, the what happened there, well, that, that actually is important. What gradually happened was the Northern Whigs began to look around, even the Northern Democrats began to look around, and people were changing around them. And I'll, I'll end with this little note. There is a, in the Martin Van Buren papers, here you are in the state of New York, Martin Van Buren one of the great New York Pauls, the inventor of the political machine, has a, in his papers, there is this amazing broadside, it's, it's a broadside, it's a big poster that he had rumpled up and shoved into his papers, but it was printed. It's called The Political Tornado, 1837, of how the Democrats were, were blown out of Albany. They lost all sorts of seats at Albany. Here he is in Washington flipping out about what's happening. Over the course of the 1830s and particularly the 40s, Northern voters, both Democrats and Whigs, but more of them were Whigs, began to say, whoa, we don't buy into this anymore and you, our elected officials, better take notice. And so you, had, you there are 
there are actually letters, Van Buren writes letters and other people writing letters and we have to hand, we have to get a handle on on what the voters are saying. The voters are shifting around us. And so what happens is effectively it happens more rapidly among the among the North Whigs. They hang uh, they they are de facto anti slavery much earlier. Uh, the Democrats are are more divided, significantly more divided, and particularly more neutral to pro-slavery. But even there, they're backing away from what the public wants, and the public want to change. But just to clear, the Democrats are backing away from what the public wanted, and the Democrats are backing away from what the. Keep in mind that in the antebellum period, the, the Democrats were pro-business, pro-slavery. Yeah, pro, you know, they were pro. They were broadly aligned with the South. And even the many Northern Democrats began to, you know, began to lose their seats. If they, and, and you get into the 1850s, there are mass slaughters of Democratic representatives. After the Kansas-Nebraska Act, they, two-thirds of them are voted out of office. So the voters start to speak in a big way. And the, uh, and the same thing happens, and I, I really do have to end this at that point. Uh, and it's okay. a picky little point, but in, in 1861... 6061, after the election, uh, South Carolina secedes, and the Northern William Seward and many of the Northern Whigs are running around, Republicans now are flipping out. How can we appease the South? How can we, oh, we got to avoid this crisis and we have to give them what they want? And then the Republican voters start writing letters saying, no giving in, screw them. You know, pedal to the metal. No compromise with slavery. Well, so the, you know what's what I, my point being that if you can change the culture, and I think it's happening, you are, you know, you're beginning to, you're on the way toward changing the structures, changing policy, changing law, changing how things are done. And again, that may not be enough, but it's it's a huge step. Well, that's a great place for me to end. So right. unless there's anything else from you, I want, I want to thank you again. Well, thank you, Josh. It was fun to, fun to talk through this stuff. <laughs> oh, man. Same here. And I'll keep you updated on how things go. Great. Well, John Brooke, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Josh. Bye-bye. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.